Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 16 this morning. We are wrapping up our summer series. We spent June, July, and August in the parables of our Lord. June, July, and August in some amazing sections of Scripture. It's been a very, very rich time. I know my heart has been encouraged. I pray that your hearts have been as well. We've covered very familiar territory with some familiar parables, and I I pray, I hope that your heart has been enriched in the familiarity of those parables so that it's not breeding contempt over those parables, but you've been learning things from them that maybe you hadn't seen before or just relearning things that you knew. We've also looked at a couple very strange, not so well-known parables, and I pray that those have brought a little bit of clarity to maybe some teachings of Jesus that were a little bit more difficult to understand. So, it's very challenging when you enter into a topical study, as we've been doing, going through, obviously expositionally through each parable, but just picking random parables. We, we just kind of sat down, Brian and I, just, uh, what are you going to get? What am I going to get? Here we go, let's do it. We prayed over it, but that was really the extent of what we did. There are so many parables, and it's very difficult to figure out how to end a series like that. Like, I know exactly how we're going to end our series in the Gospel of John. We're going to end it when we get to the end of his book, and that's the end. So that's very easy to know. How do we end a topical series through various parables? Um, I wanted to go to a very well-known parable, uh, and, and I narrowed it down to two that I was thinking of. Good Samaritan, which is an amazing parable. And uh, we're already talking about doing this again next summer, of summer through the parables again. So we've really enjoyed it, and there are so many parables. We'll be able to do that again. The other one that I was wrestling with was the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And as you can see in your bulletin, I landed on that one. Why? Because I think it would be right for us to end a a series through parables of Jesus' teaching to end it with his main message. Obviously, he has given us many messages. Be careful how you use your money. Uh, Prepare for the end times and be ready for Jesus' coming. All these different messages, but the central message The central theme of the entire scriptures is salvation found in the Messiah alone, not in our own good works or our own man-made righteousness. I thought it would be good for us to land on that, and this parable does exactly that. This parable is a very challenging one. Um, the, The central character of this parable is not Lazarus. It's the rich man. And you know he spends the majority of this parable in hell. Um, Many people would shy away from preaching on hell. I know I don't enjoy preaching on hell. I don't enjoy preaching on judgment. But Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. He addressed the issue of hell more than he addressed the issue of heaven. Um, You remember in John chapter 5, we looked at it uh, a couple of months ago, in our time through the Gospel of John, he healed a paralytic man, and he says to the paralytic man, get up, go, and sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. He's not talking about getting sick. He knows there's something worse in life than being paralyzed for your entire life. He knows that there's something worse in life than dying. He knows what's worse than dying is dying eternally. And everlasting punishment. In our day and age, we don't 
like to talk about that. Even the evangelical church as a whole is moving away from the idea of what the Bible clearly teaches about hell. With books like Love Wins, where Rob Bell says hell is not a real place. It's really just in your mind and what you think it, think it is in this world and your terrible days and moments in this life. And bad people ultimately will be purified in, in the afterlife and will be redeemed by God. Universalism, everyone gets to heaven. So some people just don't talk about hell. Um, and that's pretty ridiculous and unbiblical because Jesus talks about hell. Um, the Bible is clear that hell is a very real place. But I think that there's another extreme on the other side. There are some people who say, we're just not going to talk about hell. We're just going to talk about the gospel. And that's pretty ridiculous because the good news isn't good unless you have bad news that the good news helps destroy and defeat and answer. But there's another extreme on the other side. There are people that love preaching about hell. There are people that only preach about hell. It's just judgment and condemnation every single Sunday. And that's just as ridiculous if you preach hell but no gospel. Um, It's just as ridiculous as preaching the gospel with no hell. Some people preach hell, and I've listened to preachers who preach hell, number one, almost as if they're excited to preach it, which I don't get that. And number two, as if hell were more terrifying than heaven is beautiful. Um, We should never preach hell as if it were more horrific then Jesus is glorious. You need to understand the horrors of hell, and then you need to see that Jesus is better by far than anything this world has to offer that would take you there to hell. And even the horrors can all be dissolved in what Jesus did at the cross. So we preach Christ. We preach hell. We preach sin. We preach heaven. We preach the glories of the gospel. We preach the good news. We preach the bad news. We preach what the Bible clearly teaches. In fact, as we're going to see in this text, the very thing that the rich man wanted was somebody to preach to his family about hell. That's what he wanted. He didn't think that that place existed, and if it did, he definitely didn't think he was going there. And so he wanted somebody to come back and to say, it is a real place, and you will go there if you don't trust in Jesus Christ. He wanted that. So we need to do that Uh, in effect because of what Jesus is saying in this parable. Again, Lazarus never speaks in this story. He's only there for contrast. The story is about the rich man and his experience in hell. He's the main character in the story. And as he speaks from hell, this rich man gives us something that is found nowhere else in Scripture. This is a unique passage. Nowhere else in the Bible is there a personal description of what it's like to be in hell. There's descriptions of what hell is like, but not of somebody in hell describing the torment they're experiencing in that moment. We have in in Scripture many accounts, or not many, we have a couple accounts, of people describing what heaven is like. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, I was caught up into the third heaven. And if you were to say, great, give us a description of what you saw, his description, quote-unquote, is most unhelpful because he says, I can't tell you. Um, John gives us a better description of what's happening in heaven with the whole book of Revelation. But there's no other place in the Bible where there's a description of a man in hell describing what is happening. A little background, just two points for background before we dive into this text. The first thing that we have to say is this is a parable. Um, There are some people that would take this to be a real-life story, a real-life account. Um, I don't think that they are unbiblical by any means. 
Um, I just wouldn't interpret that passage this way. I would interpret the passage this way by saying it's a parable. It's a story, just as we've seen all the other parables, and we define them uh, at the very beginning of our summer series. I believe it's a parable based on a number of things. Number one, the way that it is introduced. Now there was a rich man um, is the way that Jesus introduced a lot of, of stories, a lot of parables. Now there was this. Now a man had two sons, and this and this um, happens. It's very similar to the other parables that he says. There's stylistic things going on in this parable that are not factually true, if you will. Um, they're a little bit exaggerated for a point. And Jesus does that in all of his parables. Uh, the exaggeration of what happened to the prodigal son. Um, it, 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 it's not happening, but if it were to happen, this is the way it would happen. You don't see a, a young boy saying the things that he said to his father the way that he did, liquidating everything, going on. You don't, this is just um, account upon account upon account upon account of just everything going poorly. And Jesus stylistically makes that up in his story to prove a point. He's at his wit's end. There's no hope for him. I believe he's doing the same thing here. The Bible is very clear that people in heaven can't see into hell. People in hell can't see into heaven. People in hell can't see anything. It's utter darkness. They can't speak to each other. They certainly can't address God. They can't be speaking to somebody in heaven. So I think Jesus is saying that for effect, for a point that he's trying to make. That if it were to happen, it would happen this way. Um, the one reason, by the way, that people would say it is a real story is because this is the only parable that somebody has a name. This is the only parable in the Bible that Jesus describes where somebody is given a name. So that clues people in to say something's different about this, and I think something is different. Lazarus has a name. He's named. This isn't the Lazarus in John 11 who's raised from the dead by Jesus. This is a different Lazarus. He's given the name Lazarus, which comes from Eliezer, which just means the Lord is my helper. The Lord is the one who helps me. I believe he's given a name to show the stark contrast of the rich man in hell. The rich man in hell doesn't have a name because the rich man in hell doesn't need a name in hell because there are no relationships in hell. You're a nobody in hell. When you are sent to hell, you aren't given any preferential treatment. You aren't in a relationship with other people. They need to know your name. You're nameless. For all of the extravagance he had and the pomp and circumstance he had in life, he goes to an afterlife where he doesn't even have a name. Secondly, for introduction, number one, this is a parable. And number two, the context. Why does Jesus say this parable? We looked at the context of the parable of the ten virgins, for instance. We looked at the context of the parable of the prodigal son. We've seen contexts that help enrich the story for us. What's the context here? The context in chapter 16, we actually studied this parable, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, all about that unrighteous steward, the unrighteous, shrewd manager of the money. And the whole point was use your money wisely in this life to help further the kingdom so that other souls can be with you in the afterlife. Be wise with your money. And Jesus ends by saying you can't serve money because money will then be your master. And if money is your master, if you're serving money and money is your master, then you are not following Jesus. So he says, you must master your money and use it to serve the Lord. You can't serve God and wealth. Who will you serve? And if you pick it up in verse 14 of Luke chapter 16, the Pharisees were lovers of money. So they're scoffing at him. Jesus says, you can't serve money. It will become your master and you'll prove you're not a follower of Jesus. 
And they laugh at him. They scoff at him. Why? A number of reasons. But one of them is they believe that the wealthier you were in life, the more blessed by God you were. So you can absolutely serve money, gain money, work to gain money, and serve God because God's blessing you by giving you all this money. They loved money. They scoff. They were the original prosperity gospel preachers by saying, um, if you want to be wealthy and rich and happy in this life, you need to obey God. And if you're happy and blessed and rich and wealthy in this life, that means God's blessing you. And if you don't have anything, if you are poor, that means you're cursed by God. That's just the prosperity gospel, and Jesus is going to attack that head on in this parable. He then says in verse 15, as they're scoffing at him, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. What's highly esteemed among men, among them? Two things in context. Number one, their own righteousness. We're good enough. We don't need God to save us. We can save ourselves. And number two, money. We are highly esteeming money, but God says don't, that's not what you should be serving. Don't serve the favor that you get from having a lot of money. That's one of the reasons why he addressed that in Luke chapter 15, the money that the younger brother had. He lost it and he lost all his friends. So Jesus says, don't chase after the things that are highly esteemed among you, your own righteousness, or thinking that you're blessed by God because you have a lot of money and you're doing everything right. Then he says, verse 16, and I believe Luke is giving us just bullet points. I think there's a whole teaching here, and that's why it kind of seems confusing. We're going to try and connect the dots to get us to the context of what this parable is saying. Verse 16, he says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. So he says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed, and they proclaimed hope inside of a massive amount of condemnation. You must keep the law, and if you don't, you will die in your sins, but there's hope because there's a Messiah coming. There's a hope for the cleansing of your sins. And now Jesus is saying, I am that Messiah. The gospel is now being proclaimed, and so everyone's forcing their way into it. There's hope. The condemnation that we are under, under the law, now Jesus is going to fulfill that law and give us hope and freedom from that condemnation. So they all want a piece of that, but not the Pharisees. The Pharisees want to still have their law. And Jesus himself says, I'm not going to destroy the law. I'm fulfilling it. Verse 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of of the letter of the law to pass away. One isn't replacing the other. The gospel isn't replacing the law. The gospel's fulfilling the law. You cannot keep the law in its perfect uh, obedience, in its perfection and holiness. Therefore, you need the gospel. We are all lawbreakers, so we must have an alien righteousness that's not our own that's given to us. I believe he says that to tell the Pharisees, you are still stuck on laws. You have made your own set of rules. You've made your own laws, and you're condemned under your own laws. But you don't even think you are. You think that you can keep the law perfectly. And that's why I think he goes to verse 18 with a lot of other things around it. I think Luke just gives us one little sentence. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. What is he saying? I think he's telling the Pharisees, look, the law over here proves we are all lawbreakers, and we need the gospel. We need an alien righteousness. But you've disregarded the law, and you've made your own man-made laws. And so you think that you're perfect because you keep your own rules and regulations. So I'm perfect. 
You've disregarded this. It can't be disregarded because heaven and earth will pass away sooner than that. That will never pass away. So you can't disregard it. Even though you don't agree with it happening, you're still under the law. You're condemned. But you think because you've made these rules that you're okay. So I think he attacks one of those rules. You remember, we talked about this before. Back in that time, you could divorce. It was permitted pretty much for any reason you want. If your wife burns your toast in the morning, you can say, I'm done, I'm out, and give her a certificate of divorce. And so Jesus says, you know, your man-made laws, they don't adhere to the law of God. They don't. So even in your laws that you think you're perfect in, you're still a lawbreaker. It's like being pulled over by a cop and the cop saying, you know why I pulled you over? You say, no, sir. And you say, you were going uh, 65 in a, in a 40 zone. Oh, I thought it was a 65 zone. So you're going to look and go, oh, you didn't know? Okay, no worries. No, he's going to look at you and say, well, tough luck. You should have known. So Jesus is saying, you've made your own rules, and you're going to stand before God and go, well, I've kept these rules. And God's going to say, I have all of these rules that you didn't keep. You are a lawbreaker. And they're going to go, oh, we didn't know those laws. I think that's why he's going to bring in the law and the prophets in this account. Oh, you know the law. You have the law. You're just not reading it. You're not listening to it. So I think all those things together sets the stage for what Jesus is going to say. So let's read it together. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in blue and purple and fine linen. He's dressing in beautiful clothing, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. God, please grant us grace as we study this massively important parable. 
Grant grace for any in this room who do not know that their eternal destiny is secure in Christ. And grant urgency to those of us who do that we would proclaim this message faithfully, urgently, with those at this very moment around us who don't know the hope of Jesus Christ. God, be our teacher this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. Jesus sets out to share uh, huge contrasts in this parable. Contrast. This is just stories of contrasts and reversals. There's a poor man. There's a rich man. There's a poor man who becomes rich, and there's a rich man who becomes poor. Uh, There's a poor man who has no food, but then is ushered into a feast. There's a rich man who has everything, but then can't even get a drop of water uh, to be put onto his tongue. There's a poor man who has nothing and then gains everything. There's a rich man who has everything and then has nothing. There's a poor man who's a nobody that becomes a somebody. There's a rich man who's a somebody but becomes a nobody, nameless. There are contrasts and reversals in this story. And again, I think that's one of the reasons why it's a parable. Jesus is giving us a beautiful, picturesque contrast and and reversals in this story. For way of an outline this morning, just very clearly you can see there's life, there's death, and then there's life after death. So just those are our three points. Life, number one, death, number two, and life after death, number three. Let's first look at life. Verse 19, in life, Jesus paints extreme images of this man. There's a rich man. He habitually dressed. So every day, this is his habit to dress in purple, beautiful colors, fine linen. Purple is the color of royalty. Wealthy people would have worn purple And he wears it every single day. And he has fine linen. The word for linen is um, a word for that Egyptian cotton. We know that even today. Egyptian cotton sheets and linen sheets are the most valuable sheets and very good quality. He owned those. He's joyously living in splendor every day. So habitually every day. Jesus is trying to paint a picture for us of an extreme lifestyle. This is a very prodigal man, right? Excessive, uh, wealthy, spending everything. He could do whatever he wanted. He would feast every day. Whatever he wanted to do, he could do it. And because of that beautiful painted picture, the Pharisees would have said, this man is blessed by God. Look at everything he has. He's blessed by God. Remember, the Pharisees had Job's friends mentality. If things are going bad for you, it's because you're being cursed by God. If things are going well for you, it's because you're blessed by God. The mentality of John chapter 9. Why is this man born blind? What did he do? He did something bad, right? And Jesus is going to say, we'll see this in a couple of weeks. Jesus is going to say, no, that's not it. You know, if things are going poorly for you, you're not cursed by God. If things are going well for you, you're not blessed by God. But that's what the Pharisees believe. So they would have said, okay, we've got a rich man. He's blessed by God. He's a godly man. And, verse 20, we have a poor man. The word poor literally is the word nothing, a nothing man. He had nothing that he owned, that he had. He had nothing. His name is Lazarus, and the Lord is my helper. And he was laid at his gate, at the rich man's gate, covered with sores. The word laid is, um, it's actually a Greek word, balo. I love this word. It just means to throw or to toss as far as you can. So it's in the passive. So this poor guy, Lazarus, is unable to get himself to the gate. So some nice man with compassion says, I'll take you. And he literally scoops him up and throws him at the gate. Go ahead, hoping that maybe the rich man sees him and maybe the rich man will give him some food or some money. He's dumped 
at the gate of the rich man. And he's covered with sores. This is the Greek word where we get ulcers from. Probably uh, bed sores from just lying down because he can't move. And so they're probably opening up. They're just disgusting. He's dirty. He's filthy. He has sores all over his body. Verse 21. Longing to be fed with the crumbs which are falling from the rich man's table. Um, There's a man named Jeconias Jeremias. It's quite a name. (laughs) Jeconias Jeremias. He is a a Jewish historian, and he talks about um, what this means. Because we tend to think people are eating and crumbs are falling, and he just scoops them up. It's a little bit worse than that. Um, Jeconias Jeremiah says that they, uh, if you're sitting at a feast with a bunch of Jewish people, and you had crumbs, you had leftover pieces of bread, those would be used by the people at the feast uh, basically as a napkin. You're dipping your hands into things. You're dipping your hands into soup or stew or things like that. And as you wanted to wipe your hands, instead of wiping them on your shirt, you would take the pieces of bread, the crumbs, and just wipe your hands off. They would, you know, spongy, make sure that your hands are clean. You wipe them off, then you throw them on the ground. So Lazarus is trying to eat dirty napkins for all intents and purposes. And he can't even do that. The dogs are coming. They're probably eating the crumbs before he can get to them. And they're also licking his sores. So dogs aren't pets. Right, The worst thing that you could ever call somebody back then is a dog. That's kind of changed in our common vernacular, right? Dog doesn't, it's not an insult anymore. It's, what's up, dog? You know, it's very different now. But back then, that was derogatory. That was mean. And so they have the worst of the worst happening to this poor man. And the best of the best happening to the rich man. So the Pharisees would have said, okay, the rich man's blessed by God. The poor man is obviously cursed by God. Okay? That's life. Number two, death. Now, the poor man died. Verse 22. Poor man died. The Pharisees would have said, finally, God's curse upon him is complete. He has died and has been taken away and removed from this earth and sent into some form of punishment. But Jesus says, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. I've always wondered how long Jesus take pauses as he's saying these things. How long did he take a pause after, now the poor man died. And he was carried away by the angels. I think there would have been gasps. There would have been shrieks. What? No. He's cursed by God. How could he be carried away by the angels? He's personally carried by the angels. He was carried by somebody in life and thrown at a gate. And now he is carried gently, softly, tenderly into heaven into, to sit with Abraham. Abraham's bosom, that's not a place. There are many people who take, if they take this as a real story, a real account, they see Abraham's bosom as some form of holding tank for heaven and Hades as some form of holding tank for hell. And somehow those two places like become heaven and hell. It's a whole thing. We don't have time to talk about it. If you have questions about it, totally ask me. Um, but the bottom line is, Abraham's bosom is not a place. It's heaven where Abraham is, and this man is resting on Abraham's chest. That's the, that's the figure of speech that's being used here. Abraham is in heaven. Nobody would have second-guessed that. Abraham's in heaven. Pharisees knew that. Religious leaders knew that. He's in heaven. And this man gets the most prominent seat Next to Abraham, you remember John at the Last Supper is resting on Jesus' chest? 
That's what's happening here. The, the poor man, Lazarus, is resting on Abraham's chest. Pharisees would have scratched their head. He was cursed by God. How did that happen? Jesus finishes it by saying, well, the rich man also died and was buried. He also died and was buried. Notice a couple things. Number one, he ends the sentence there. He died and he was buried. So the Pharisees go, okay, well, he's up with Abraham too. I guess they both. So what's the point of the story? Jesus tells us. And when he starts verse 23 by saying, in Hades, there's going to be another gasp. But also notice this. Jesus says that the poor man was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Glorious picture. Glorious words being used and stretched out. The rich man, he says, died and was buried. We already begin to see that though this man was a somebody in life, he's a nobody in God's economy afterlife. He's died and was buried. He had a burial. Probably Lazarus didn't. He died and was buried. That's life and that's death. Now what about life after death? Number three. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom, resting on his chest. He's in hell. Again, Hades. Uh, in the Old Testament, yes, Hades usually refers to just the place of the dead. But in the New Testament, as Jesus is explicitly talking about hell, he uses hell and Hades synonymously. And he uses Hades specifically to refer to the place where the wicked die and go when they die. It's a, it's a place where wicked people exist after life. I don't believe that it's a separate place from hell. I believe Hades is just synonymous with hell. He's in hell and he lifts up his eyes, being in torment. And he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus at his chest. This is the biggest reversal. This is a a stunner. They thought that if you suffer in life, you're cursed by God, so obviously you're going to go to hell. And if you are blessed by God in this life because you have riches and prosperity, then you are going to go to heaven, obviously. But it's the exact opposite. What a reversal. The word torment. He's being in torment. That word in the Greek is literally, it's in the plural, in torments. He's in multiple torments. Not just torment, it's torments. Coming at him from every side. Have you ever just stopped? If you get five minutes And just think about what it would be like to exist in hell. Have you ever done that? Um, Do you remember the feeling? You probably haven't had this in years because you're amazing people, obedient to the core. But do you remember back when you were probably like two, when you disobeyed your parents and you were found out in your sin? Do you remember the feeling that you had in your stomach? When you realize that they knew you did something wrong and you got caught, maybe you have had that feeling if you've been pulled over by a cop doing 65 in a 40 zone. That feeling of, oh no, I've been caught, I've been found out, that feeling of guilt and shame, your skin starts to crawl and you just want to get out of that moment as fast as you can. That feeling, it's one of the worst feelings, I think, in life. I don't like that feeling at all. It's a very happy motivator to obey because I don't want that feeling. 
that feeling, one of the worst feelings in this lifetime, is probably the best feeling that you will ever feel in hell. Every second you are in hell, you are being reminded that you've been found out in your sin. You've been found out in your guilt and your shame. It's the worst feeling here, but that's probably the easiest thing to deal with in hell, considering there are so many more massive tortures and torments that are going on. There's weeping, there's wailing, there's gnashing of teeth, there's a place where the fire is never quenched, there's a place where you can't see anything. You wish you could die, but it says the worm never dies. You can't ever die. So Jesus gives us a stylized perspective here because it says that he lifts his eyes and sees Abraham far away and Lazarus lying, reclining at the table, lying on his chest. That's not possible. It's a stylized version of what could happen. If this could happen, this is what would happen. But we know nobody can see anything that's happening in hell. It's utter darkness. You can't talk to your friends. And yet he's going to speak. So here we get to the stylized portion. He sees Abraham and he cries out, verse 24, and he says, Father Abraham. This is so crucial because this man's a religious man. Father Abraham, you are our father. You are um, in our lineage. You are the one who made us who we are. We are Hebrews because of you. He's a good Jewish man. Might even be a religious leader, this rich man. But notice two things. Number one, his uh, religion, his ethnic heritage and tradition was not enough to lead him to the fruit of compassion. He was merciless in life. He saw the poor man Lazarus and he never did anything to help him. And now the merciless one wants mercy. But number two, please note that the rich man is praying, if you will. He's speaking to Abraham, not to God. In life, this man wanted nothing to do with God. We saw that in the prodigal son, right? Every, every person who is not a believer, all of us before we came to Christ, all we want is God out of the way so that we can do what we want. We see God as a barrier, not a blessing. God, we wish you were dead so that we could do what we wanted to do. We don't want God. This man doesn't want God. In his life, he doesn't want God. And even in his death, he is still refusing to say, God, I need mercy from you. And instead, he's saying, I'm not going to talk to God. I don't want God. I want Abraham. Abraham. I'm pleading on the basis of my ethnic heritage. Remember John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, verses 8 and 8 through 11. He says this, Bear fruit that keeps with repentance, and don't begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. They're saying, Oh, we don't need uh, the Messiah. Um, the, the, the Jewish people are saying, We don't need a Messiah to save us. He's just going to be our king, and we enter into the kingdom because we're Jews. And he says, don't say we have Abraham as our father, because I tell you the truth. God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. It's not your ethnic heritage that's going to get you in. It's repentance that's going to get you in. So he says, please, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And what would you expect him to say? I mean, if we're finishing this story, have mercy on me and get me out of here. If you have keys, if you have some form of pulling me out of this, get me out. Have mercy on me and get me out of here. But he doesn't say that. Why? He knows that's not an option. He knows that's not an option. 
One pastor says it this way. He does not ask for reconsideration or release on the ground of pity or mercy. He does not say, somebody made a mistake. He doesn't ask, why am I here? All pretense has now been stripped away and he is under the full weight of his own guilt. He knows he deserves to be in hell and all he asks for is the smallest hint of relief. He doesn't say, please get me out. He knows he can't get out. So he says, please give me some relief. And in his terrible, sinful state, he he says this. I just think this is fascinating. He says, please give me relief. Give me mercy by sending Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool off my tongue. What is he doing? He's saying, you know what? In life, I was the rich man. He was the poor man. I was over him. And in death, even though he's in heaven and I'm in hell, I'm still over him. He's still my slave. Do my bidding, which tells us something incredibly important about hell. Hell is not remedial. Hell does not fix you. Hell is not purgative, if you will. It doesn't change you as a holding tank that brings you to a place where now you can enter heaven. Hell is only punitive. Hell is punishment. This man is not changing for the better. He's still just as bad as he was in his life. And he says, serve me, Lazarus. Be my slave. He's demanding. He's commanding that that happen. And notice what he says. I just want to drop. Not a bucket. Just a drop. I'm in so much agony. This is like when you see in movies with you know, a guy in the desert who's been wandering around and he finds a canteen and unscrews it as fast as he can. And, he, and he, it's just one drop. And he just goes, oh, I got one drop. And then he's like, where's more? But just the one drop is enough to go, oh, just relief for one moment. He says, let him cool off my tongue. End of verse 24. For I am in agony in this flame. That again, agony is in plural. I am in agonies, multiple agonies. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce says it this way. It's not merely that hell is a place of suffering, though it is. It's that the loss of those in hell becomes ever more acute. And the desperation of the lost ever more desperate. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse as you realize all of the opportunities you had in life, as you realize your hardness of heart. What does Abraham say? Verse 25. Abraham answers and says, child. Um, He's probably answering that for two reasons. Number one, he's saying, uh, you are my child, a child of Abraham. You are a Jew. Number two, this is that word. You remember when the father in the parable, the prodigal son, the father says to the older brother, son. It's the same Greek word. It's a word of compassion. Shows us that maybe there's still even a little bit of compassion that the father looks upon those in hell and says, oh, remember what Jesus said? To Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had come to me, if you had repented, I would have hid you under my arms like a a mother hen hides uh, the the baby chicks. I would have taken care of you. Maybe this is pointing to the fact that our Father in Heaven is saying that even now, I would have taken care of you if you had just turned to me. It says, remember that during your life you received good things, common grace, and likewise Lazarus received bad things, and now you are in agony, and he is being comforted. There's a reversal there. You had an amazing life, but you didn't do what was necessary. You didn't find uh, the, the truth in Jesus and the scriptures and the Messiah. 
And so you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm that is fixed. There's a great chasm that is fixed. Um, that word fixed is the word that's used in Revelation to speak of God's throne. Cannot be moved. Set fast. And the tense that this word is in, um, in this verse, is literally, there has been fixed and it will stand forever permanently. You can't come here. We can't go there. That's impossible. So Abraham says, I'm sorry, but your request is denied. No relief, no hope, no change. So, verse 27, he says, then, and that then is, okay, I understand. I understand that's the case. I'm not going to get any relief. Now, can you send somebody back to tell my family? Verse 27, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. There's at least a little bit of a virtuous uh, understanding of what's going on here because he says, I don't want them coming here. But he's also still saying, Lazarus is my slave. Lazarus is my servant. Make him do my bidding. He's not repenting. It's impossible to repent in hell. You need the Holy Spirit to repent, and the Holy Spirit's not happening in hell. It's impossible to repent in hell. So he says, please, let him, let him go back. And verse 29, Abraham says, well, they have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them hear them. That word hear is where we get our word acoustics. It's all around you. Let them hear them. Let them be changed by them. And here we see the true colors of the rich man. He says, no, you're wrong. Father Abraham, you're wrong. In essence, he's saying this. I had Moses and the prophets, and I'm in hell. So Moses and the prophets are not enough. Why did the rich man wind up in hell? It's because he didn't listen to Moses and the prophets. He did not wind up in hell forever because he lacked information, but because he ignored the information that was readily at his disposal. He had received the word of God. He just denied it. This, again, is a rebuke of the Pharisees who say, we have our own law. We don't abide by your law. We have our own law. He says, no, Father Abraham, that doesn't work. It didn't work for me. I'm not saved. I had those things. It doesn't save. So instead, do this. Send him back from the dead so that a person who's been resurrected from the dead can show up and say, hey, everybody, maybe he's glowing. Maybe he looks different. Everybody knew Lazarus had died. He had a name. Everybody knew who he was. He was always lying down at the gate of the rich man. He's dead now. People knew that. And now he's alive again. The rich man says that will help somebody be saved. That will get them saved. Abraham responds, and he says in verse 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. He says, in essence, it's better to have a book in your hands to read than it is to have a person raised from the dead speaking to you. This is more reliable. This is better. This is sufficient. By the way, how would the religious leaders respond? Remember Jesus speaking this to the religious leaders. How would they respond? to a dead person coming to life again. I'll tell you. John 11, uh, John chapter 11, verses 47 through 53. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, this is the other Lazarus, when he was raised from the dead by Jesus, the religious leaders get together and they say, we need to kill Jesus. 
We need to kill him. He just raised a man from the dead, and because of that action, they say, let's kill Jesus. So send Lazarus back, different Lazarus, but send Lazarus back from the dead so that they will hear and will repent. What are they going to do? They're going to kill the person who raised him from the dead. Even more than that, John chapter 12, verse 10, when they figured out that they couldn't get to Jesus to kill him, they say, well, then let's kill Lazarus. Like, he was raised by Jesus from the dead, and we want to kill Jesus for doing that, which I don't know why. It's just a perfect picture of sin. And they say, well, we can't kill him, so let's just kill Lazarus, the guy that he raised from the dead. Even Jesus, when he's raised from the dead, they go, hmm, tomb's empty. People are seeing him. He's alive. What should we do? We have two options here. We can either repent and, and just throw away this whole charade. Let's give it up. He is who he claims to be. We know he's raised from the dead. We see him. We know it. Or let's make up a story. We still don't want to believe him. And so let's make up a story. And here's the story. The disciples stole the body in the middle of the night and they took it away. Even when somebody came back from the dead, multiple people came back, it did not bring saving faith. This is so crucial. Miracles, seeing and witnessing signs and wonders and miracles will not save anybody. They might utterly knock somebody out of their senses when they see a miracle like that. You might be absolutely knocked out of your senses, but you will never be knocked out of your sin, if you will, by seeing a miracle. Never. Will you repent if you see a miracle? No. Abraham says no. He says they had the word of God and it is sufficient, but they didn't listen. You, you didn't listen and if they don't listen, they will wind up exactly where you are. Life, death, and life after death. That's the point. What do we do with this parable? Three things for just a quick conclusion here. Number one, consider your eternal destiny. Consider your eternal destiny. I, I would plead with you today to go home and to spend five minutes in utter silence, eyes closed, and just think what would hell be like. Um, that will either get you saved or it will make you insane. Or you'll just say, I don't believe in it. It's too horrific to even believe in it. I'm not going to believe in it. Consider your eternal destiny. Consider how easy it is for somebody to go to hell. What's required of you to go to hell? Just live your life. Be a good person. Try and have fun. Just be you. Do nothing and you'll wind up in hell. So I want to plead with you. If you were to die tonight, I know that we say this phrase a lot. And maybe it's become so old in our minds that we don't even heed this question. I don't even think this question is a reality. We ask this question a lot. If you were to die tonight, stand before God, and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? How would you respond? I don't even think that's going to happen. It's appointed in a man wants to die, and then judgment, and I don't think there's an interchange. Hey, give me your defense. I think it's, here's the reality of what's happening, hell or heaven. That's it. For believers to depart from this life, Paul says it's instantly to be in the presence of the Lord, in heaven. 
But to be a non-believer is to be instantly cast out of the presence of the Lord. So I, I want to plead with you today, sometime today. If you were to die, just think about this question. If you were to die tonight and stand before God, and all of us are going to die a lot sooner than we think we are. And if God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? What would it be? What's the Pharisee's answer? Uh, my ethnic heritage, my traditions. I keep my man-made laws, and I'm good. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. What is the answer? The answer is the gospel. Why should you let me into heaven, God? The answer is you shouldn't. I'm a sinner condemned to die for all of eternity because of my sin. I have been offensive to you, O holy God. And my sin deserves my punishment. I don't deserve to be there. But I believe with all that I know in my heart that I could possibly believe. I believe in what your word said. I deserve hell, and you loved me enough to send Jesus to take hell on the cross, bear the full righteous wrath of God against my sin, remove it so that I can stand before you right now and say, I don't deserve to be there, but Jesus died to, to get me there. Jesus died so that I could wear his righteousness. He took the punishment I deserve. So why should I be there? Not me. It's Jesus. And I cling to him. I plead the blood of Jesus. That is the answer of the gospel. And the fruit of our life will demonstrate that. So number one, consider your eternal destiny. Number two, in conclusion, the horrors of hell are real and the joys of heaven are real. The horrors of hell are real and the joys of heaven are are real. This parable just zeroes in on the horrors of hell. But don't just stop there. The horrors of hell should be a warning to us, and God uses that. Jesus uses that to help us. You know, uh, if you struggle with lust, he says, take radical amputation and gouge out your eye. He's not literally saying that, but he says, get radical with your sin so that your whole body will not be cast into hell. So he uses that as a warning to plead with you to repent. But he also uses heaven as a promise to plead with you to repent. So often we just stare at the negatives. Okay, I don't want to do this because that will happen. I don't want to do this because of bad. I don't want to do this because bad consequence. I don't want to do this because of bad consequence. That's like saying if you're, you go to the doctor and you say, you know, my throat really hurts. And they say, okay, we'll do a, a check here. Okay, you have strep throat. Okay, what are we going to do? Well, we've got to give you the chemo. You know? if, if every single medical issue was answered with chemotherapy, a lot of us would just deny that we even have issues. Jesus does not answer every single problem that we have with, you'll go to hell if you do that. He answers problems by saying, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You want to be with me. There's warnings, and that's crucial, but there's promises of blessing, and that's crucial. You need both. You can't just have a hammer in your toolbox, or else every problem becomes a nail. And we've all tried to fix something on our house with a hammer because we didn't have the right tool, and it just makes the problem worse. Trust the warnings and lean in and press into the promises. The horrors of hell are real, and the joys of heaven are real. Let fear drive you. 
and let the goal of blessing drive you. And finally, number three, if the word of God is sufficient, and if hell is real, and if the joys of heaven are real, then number three, we must share the gospel. We must share the gospel. That's what the rich man wanted. Please let my family know that there is a place called hell. I had a conversation with my neighbor. Um, just found out that his sister, who is older than him, has cancer, and the doctors don't give her very long. And I said, I'm so sorry, and I prayed with him. And he said, it's okay. It's okay. I mean, we're all going to die, right? And I thought, yeah. Even, even he knows that. We're all going to die. We all have to figure out what our eternal destiny is going to be. We're all going to die. The question is, what's going to happen when you die? And my friends, I just want to plead with you. If you don't know without a shadow of a doubt that if you were to die today, you would be covered in the righteousness of Jesus, seen blameless and holy because of him and him alone, Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn from sin, turn to him and say, wrap me in your righteousness, cleanse me of my sin, and I want to follow you the rest of my days. God, thank you so much for your amazing word. Thank you for our summer through the parables. Thank you for the beauty of Jesus Christ. And even here, seeing his amazing, the amazing way that he teaches to bring us to a place where we would fear hell And then we would see the beauty of the good news that Jesus Christ is our Savior. So we plead the blood of Jesus now. He is the one who bore our punishment, bore the wrath of God. In our place, condemned he stood. He is our only hope. May we cling to him and to him alone.